Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to the Daily Evolver Live. It's May 3rd, 2016, and I am coming to you as usual, at least, from Boulder, Colorado. And I am here with our Daily Evolver producer, Brett Walker. Hey, Brett. Yo. Hey. What's up? That was some pretty intense music you were playing. Yeah. Beyonce's Lemonade. Wow. (laughs) It's like there's... Like everybody else, and then there's Beyonce. I know. What's up with that? I know. This is pretty amazing, this this album. I, I've always been kind of a peripheral Beyonce fan, but I have to say, she can work it. It's weird, because she's kind of the queen of singles, and she seems to have brought back the album. Interesting. Cool. Yeah, I'm very drawn to her. She's an amazing talent, of course, but I don't know her music that well. And um, it was fun to listen to that. It was really, you know, powerful. Yeah. So it draws me in. Anyway, thank you all for being with us tonight. For those of you who are tuning in on Integral Radio Live, a special thank you. It's nice to feel you in the vibe. And of course, a thank you to, uh, the folks at Integral Life for hosting Integral Radio and uh, Daily Evolver, David, Corey, Angie, Jennifer, you are just the best and you are doing God's work. So uh, we appreciate you. And if you are interested in being part of the worldwide Integral community, you really ought to consider being a member of Integral Life. It's less than $100 a year, I think a dollar less than $100 a year, uh, and it is the main portal for all things integral in uh, planet Earth. So, tonight we are going to do a couple things. I'm going to start by, well, I'm going to start with just a look at the Indiana primary and what's going on in American politics. uh, And I'll get to that in a second. But I also will, after that, share a little bit about a movie I saw last weekend that I thought had the fragrance of integral consciousness about it. And that's always interesting. It's a thrilling experience, actually, to experience um, integral art. And then later, we'll look at consciousness and our ever-increasing awareness of the sentience and consciousness and interiority of animals. And we will be joined live right here in the studio by Anonymous Annie, an integrally inspired activist who is working to free the temple elephants in Sri Lanka and really doing good work in that arena around the world. Okay, (laughs) wow. Big day in American politics. Uh, Apparently, Ted Cruz just dropped out of the race. Wow, I have to sort of take a minute to just let that sink in. I've been busy on other things all day. It appears that with this move and with Donald Trump's victory in the Indiana primary, that he will indeed be the Republican nominee for the presidency of the United States. And we'll see who wins on the Democratic side. Apparently, at the moment, Bernie is beating Hillary. So uh, we'll see how that goes. 
But it looks like we'll be dealing with Donald Trump for at least the next six months and maybe the next six months and four years if he's elected or, God forbid, six months and eight years if he's reelected. And, you know, at this stage of the game, I don't know what to say. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, I make no predictions. Uh, he may very well be elected in any given season or any given day. Uh, anything can happen. And for me, the big question is, in addition to how good a candidate will Hillary Clinton be, who's likely to be the candidate, uh, but more important, how powerful is red warrior consciousness in this country? Because that is the energy that Donald Trump, from a developmental point of view, uh, that's the energy that he has tapped into and what he's projecting and, and the level on which he's communicating with his followers. And currently we know that about half of the Republican primary voters are resonating with it. I mean, that tonight, again, he's just north of 50%. We'll see how it goes as the count continues. But, you know, Republican primary voters are a subset of a subset. Uh, so they're a subset of Republican voters, and Republican voters are the most conservative people, uh, you know, on the on the conservative side of the street here in America, and so that probably adds up to about twenty percent of the population that he has captured thus far. Uh, but that is a powerful strata. We've talked about it, and and I don't want to spend too much time on it. But red warrior consciousness is the consciousness that you know we had online for about twenty thousand years of human history. And it's the realm of warlords and emperors and kings. And it is the stage of development where you're actually creating an ego. And you are finding yourself, I am powerful. That is the slogan of Red. I am powerful. And this is the claim I stake. This is my territory. And as they say, you have to build an ego before you can get rid of one. And this is the stage of the game where you're doing that. You're really moving out of tribal consciousness where the ego is melded with the tribe. And we see this in children. Uh, as children grow and they differentiate from their parents, we have a couple iterations of red as red gets stabilized. One is the terrible twos and threes. Another is uh, the world of adolescents and teenagers. And, um, and the world of Donald Trump. And it's an appropriate stage of development for people who need to bring their own personal power online and see who they are and, and, and you know, and, and be effective in the world. Or for people who, at least in this line of development, um, in the emotional, inter interpersonal line of development, people who are sort of arrested at a level that is sort of chronically insecure. And that may be a better uh, position for uh, placing Donald Trump. But um, we're going to have more time to, to study this specimen here. And um, as I said, anything could happen. And I see the latest sort of uh, blue sky polls show that Trump and Hillary are six or seven points apart. So that is, uh, you know, sobering. I did get a question from one of my listeners, uh, Tim Lopez, and he wrote me today, and he, the question's about Trump, and I think it's a good one, and I'll, I'll address it briefly here. Tim writes, from the previous podcasts 
and what you have posted on the Daily Evolver. It seems that you believe that Trump is red, the warrior consciousness. His supporters seem to know that he doesn't believe all of the extreme positions that he states. But he also exists in an orange world of business. Orange, and this orange is the modern stage of development, orange works well with red and amber, but doesn't get along with green, green being postmodern. Do you think that Trump may really be orange modern instead of red? And I actually do think that. And I just think that by sort of extrapolation, I mean, clearly the guy knows how to do orange business. He's been very successful in orange business. And you don't just do, do that by being a bull in the china shop. So he is capable of using logic and metrics and goals and having policies. And I assume that his business has actual plans and actual budgets and so forth. And that's all orange, you know, working in that kind of a complex global system of business requires that stage of consciousness. But one of the things that Integral teaches us this is that we develop unevenly and that people can have a high cognitive level of development and a low moral or interpersonal or a lower uh, moral and imper uh, um, uh, interpersonal uh, uh, levels of development. So, you know, I guess he's orange. Uh, apparently he's orange and, and he may even be have integral qualities in the sense that he's clearly capable of thinking in terms of green too. I mean, he was a Manhattan pseudo-liberal or quasi, I should say, quasi-liberal for a couple decades and uh, certainly swims in that sea very effectively. So, you know, he's an interesting guy in that way. But what I would say is that that's not what he's offering in this campaign. What he's offering in this campaign is red. He's offering himself as a super personality. And instead of offering plans or policies, he's offering assertions and claims. This is red as can be. I'll build a wall. Mexico will pay for it. I'll have the strongest military. I'll be the best jobs president God ever created. He's still saying these lines over and over. There's very little in the way of ideology. I mean, he beflummoxed the foreign policy establishment with his foreign policy speech the other day. There's contradictions throughout. No policy papers. Um, again, no plans are specific. So the question is, is he post-ideological or is he pre-ideological? Is he post-ideological in the sense that he's going to say, you know what, people, we've got lots of opinions. We got the Congress. We have the House. We have the Supreme Court. We, we got to make a deal here. We got to just move things forward, and we got to make deals on all of these things like immigration and foreign policy and abortion and all of these things, and that it's a sort of a more let's just get together and make it happen. There's a practicality to that, that what post-ideological view. It's, it has an integral quality to it, where you're actually willing to work with ideas from all sides. And he actually, in his sort of chaotic inconsistency, has shown that quality. Or is he pre-ideological? That is, he's just kind of a warlord, and he is just uh, pursuing his interests and the interests of the people in his camp and I'm not, he, he may very well in this moment be doing a very civilized uh, and conciliatory acceptance speech, a victory speech, but that's not what he was doing this morning. 
when he was accusing Raphael Cruz, Ted Cruz's father, of being part of the Lee Harvey Oswald assassination of JFK attempt. And that's just not what you do if you are trying to win over Ted Cruz supporters. Uh, and it was very likely that Ted Cruz was going to um, get out this week at least, and he seems to have done it quickly. So his supporters are in play, and Trump just went out of his way to alienate him. He's betting, I assume, this is and this is the red bet, that once they see their leader crushed, they'll go with him. You know, they'll 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 say, okay, you know, your God beat my God. It's like an old tribal thing. Clearly, your God was stronger, so I'm going with you. And that's you know, that's a red calculation. So I'm not sure he can think outside of that box, but again, we're going to have a lot of opportunity to examine as we come forward. So uh, there, there is something I wanted to uh, play, and it seemed a little off the cuff for Ted Cruz to uh, talk about Donald Trump in, in, in the way that I'm about to play. And this was, I think the first line is, you know what I really think of Donald Trump? You know, when people say that, you're about to hear something interesting, and it is. And this is where Trump or uh, Cruz unloads on Trump. And this happened earlier today and really did, I think, say what he thought. Brett, you have it queued up? Yeah. Yeah, let's play it. I'm going to tell you what I really think of Donald Trump. This man is a pathological liar. He doesn't know the difference between truth and lies. He lies practically every word that comes out of his mouth. And in a pattern that I think is straight out of a psychology textbook, his response is to accuse everybody else of lying. He accuses everybody on that debate stage of lying. And it's simply a mindless yell. Whatever he does, he accuses everyone else of doing. The man ca cannot tell the truth, but he combines it with being a narcissist. A narcissist at a level I don't think this country's ever seen. Donald Trump is such a narcissist that Barack Obama looks at him and goes, Dude, what's your problem? He is lying to his supporters. Donald will betray his supporters on every issue. If you care about immigration, Donald is laughing at you. And he's telling the money to elites. He doesn't believe what he's saying. He's not going to build a wall. That's what he told the New York Times. He will betray you on every issue. Donald Trump is a serial philanderer. And he boasts about it. This is not a secret. He's proud of being a serial philanderer. I want everyone to think about your teenage kids. The President of the United States talks about how great it is to commit adultery, how proud he is. Describes his battles with venereal disease as his own personal Vietnam. Yeah, wow. That is letting Trump have it. I really appreciated that Ted Cruz did that. As you may know if you listen to this podcast, I have been doing integral practice on Ted Cruz and trying to open my hard little heart to him because I find him to be generally so phony. But I'm beginning to realize, this is part of you know my realization, Brett, is that maybe he's not so much insincere as he just has kind of a bad personality, you know? 
I like that you always give people the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> and isn't a bad personality Even... kind, kind of a disability? <laughs> Shouldn't we have that be a protected class? Yeah. Satan's spawn is not a protected <laughs> class. Well, speaking of which, what a great segue. Uh, <laughs> let's move on to my movie review. And this is a movie uh, about Satan's spawn, actually. The Witch, it's called. And it is a new movie by a young filmmaker, 33 years old, Robert Eggers. And again, I think it has a fragrance of integral art to it. it I, I found it to be quite thrilling to watch and moving in a way that made me a bigger person. So that's um, what I want to talk a little bit about. It's about an, a time in American history that, first of all, really fascinates me. It's the time of the Puritans. A world of black magic, possession, you know, it, it, those things always arise when life conditions for people are that they're living in extreme circumstances. They don't have to talk about insecure. They don't have a lot of power. They are living in harsh nature, warring native peoples. Uh, and this was 1630 is when this movie took place. So nearly 400 years ago in a Puritan plantation, they called it. This is a walled town in New England somewhere, they don't really say. And it's the story of a family, a father, mother, and five children who are cast out of the walled community because they're even more crazy religious than the regular Puritans. And it's interesting to see that, you know, this is what happens in these early stages of development where people are living on the edge, is that if you're if you can't be with the program, you know, we talk so much about freedom and expression and individuality. Here it's about conformity. You got to support the leaders. You got to play by the rules. You got to do what you're told. And if you don't, you have to be cast out because there's just no extra capacity, uh, psychic or physical, to accommodate you. There's no way for you to live in a positive, functional relationship with the community. And, you know, so you get into this shunning, which is a standard procedure at these stages of religious development and being cast out, which often meant death for the whole family. Uh, but this family survived, and they found a meadow in the wilderness, and they build a farm, and they remain very pious, or at least the mom and the dad do. The kids are not quite so easy to manage. It's part of the what develops. But they're surrounded by this very ominous, deep, dark, mysterious forest. At any rate, you see that without the moorings of the community, without any people to relate to, particularly other adults, that their dark imaginings begin to get the best of them. And they are beset by a series of tragedies, and as that unfolds, they begin to see the devil at work, and sorcerers and witches at work, all around them, including in each other. And particularly, they focus on one child, an adolescent girl, that they begin to scapegoat. And I'll stop there with the plot, because Brett tells me I reveal too much when I do these movie reviews, and I have uh, vowed that I wouldn't. And this is the information you get in Rotten Tomatoes interviews or reviews. I didn't add anything or go any further. And 
Speaking of the Rotten Tomatoes reviews, the film gets a 90% rating from the critics. So it's well appreciated by critics. And what I loved about the movie is that they, first of all, really worked to transmit the authentic culture as it was. They did all of the interior scenes with open flame candlelight as much as they could, I guess. Uh, They built the cabin that the family lived in to completely authentic specifications uh, of the time. They planted the farm and they filmed as as the crops were growing and changing. And one of the coolest things that they did that I haven't heard of before artistically is they went back and drew real dialogue from people's diaries and written court records so that the writing uh, and, and the, what they were saying and, the, and how they were saying it were really said by Puritans in 1630. Eggers, the, the, he, was, he wrote it and directed it. He called dialogue directly from prayer manuals and Cotton Mather's accounts of witchcraft and, and here's a quote from him I read in an interview. He said, I would find and take phrases out and line them all up. And I had phrases that had to do with the devil and phrases that had to do with being happy and phrases that had to do with being sad. And he worked with those phrases in the dialogue. And I loved that. I mean, I felt like I was bathing in, in a real transmission that rang forward through the centuries that was really quite exciting. And it it transmitted a re- real respect for the humanity of these people. And you see that in a really fundamental, important way, they're just like us, uh, but in a very, very different world space. You know, here we are in modern, postmodern America or the world, and these people were in red and tribal, you know, tribal, warrior, amber, traditional, a little bit, world space. And that gets me actually to my one critique, a very significant critique of the movie. And it actually stems from this thing I liked. And that is that I couldn't really understand the dialogue. Uh, 1630, I think that's around when Shakespeare was writing. These were all English people. And I can't understand Shakespeare to save my soul. And I understand I understood maybe one word in 20. It felt like it might as well have been in another language. And it, it's a testimonial to the quality and vividness of the filmmaking that I could follow it anyway. Uh, the acting was amazing. Uh, the, as I said, the art direction, um, the, um, the, the, the cinematography was just beautiful. The music was just thrilling. And so, you know, I followed it and I got it, but boy, I'm really looking forward to watching it again. And when I do, I will turn on the subtitles and, you know, I will do the recommendation you generally don't see. And that is that, you know, I I don't recommend you watch it in a theater. I, 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 I recommend you watch it at home so you can have subtitles because, you know, if you're like me, I like to know what the writing is. I mean, that's really an important thing. And I watch most everything in subtitles anymore anyway. So, you know, that was a problem. And it may actually be a problem that was reflected in the viewers' ratings. As I said, the critics gave it 90%, but viewers only gave it 54%. And 
I, the people I were with were very frustrated by the movie. They didn't like it anywhere as much as I did, and largely because they couldn't understand what they were saying, you know? So anyway, the one thing I do want to say, and this is where I think it really uh, sort of ascended into a integral territory, was, was, was um, with the ending. And I've heard writers, novelists, movie makers, you know, tellers of great stories say that one of the most difficult things about telling a story is getting a powerful ending to the story. And this one, I won't give it away, of course, but it was a mind-blowing, perspective-shattering ending that has left me moved for the last four days. Every time I think of it, I get a deep, lower chakric thrill. And that is really, you know, wonderful. Uh, it's what art can do, you know. And what I loved about it is that the ending is not enigmatic. It could have been enigmatic. It looked like it was going that way, and it still would have been a great, highly enjoyable movie. But it wasn't. And it was specific and precise and vivid and moved the story along into, as I said, just a completely perspective-shattering new world space, and it was perfect. And as one critic said, it's weirdly progressive. He's talking about the movie. Weirdly progressive by being honest, and I agree. So I recommend it. Again, the movie is The Witch by Robert Eggers. Let me know what you think. Jeff, the trailer looked incredibly creepy. Am I going to be very creepy? Out? Yeah. Yeah, if you don't like creepy... Watch it anyway. <laughs> you should like creepy. Okay. Creepy is, is art. Can be well. You know, it's like anything. It can be either good or bad art. You know. Yeah. And I can't deal with horror films. Well, if you can't deal with horror films, I might uh, recommend you uh, go see, um, you know, the Jungle Books. <laughs> Done. Which I'm going to go see. I can't. That's that's next weekend's movie. I'm so looking forward to. Oh, that. Oh, good. I yeah. saw it already. I Did you? Away. Yeah. What'd you think? I enjoyed oh, don't it. Harsh my buzz. Here. No, I enjoyed it. Did you? I did. Yeah. I mean, the voice acting was phenomenal. I mean, yeah. it's just so great. Idris Elba was uh, the Panther, who's like Mowgli's main, right. you yeah. know, dude, and he's just so great. Yeah, he is. Yeah. Did you cry? No. Mm. <laughs> All right. Which actually is a great segue to our next section called "When Bugs Cry" in <laughs> homage to to Prince. And, and this is this topic that we refer to uh, and return to regularly on the Daily Evolver. And that is, um, well, in my life, it's this sort of central moral dilemma of my life, which is trying to reconcile my increasing grokking, understand, deep understanding of the consciousness of animals, the rich interiority, the emotional life of animals, mammals, birds, fish. We know mice, rats, and chickens all display empathy. We know fish have friends. They remember each other, you know. So all of that and reconciling that with my love of cheeseburgers and, you know, a beautiful creamy filet of sole or a chicken noodle soup. And it's... You know, it's getting harder. I got to say, it's getting harder. 
And, you know, I try to make sure the animals are happy. You know, I try to make my moral principle be, did they live a life worth living? Uh, and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, go that direction. But, you know, I think I'm in the stage of development that we call conscious incompetence, which the only good thing you can say about it is it's better than unconscious incompetence. But at any rate, one of the reasons that the pain is getting greater is that this week, as of, officially as of this week, we can now add insects to the mix of living creatures that are conscious. And there was uh, a lot of attention. I, I saw the article in the New York Times primarily uh, on um, last week. Uh, I think the, the title was, What Insects Can Tell Us About the Origins of Consciousness. And one of the lines from the, from the article is, as scientists lean increasingly towards recognizing that non-human animals are conscious in one way or the other, the question becomes, where does consciousness end? And they talk about a, a, a paper that was presented to the um, National Academy of Sciences by Andrew Barron and Colin Keith from Australia that shows that insects have a capacity for consciousness. And I love how Andrew Barron wrote about it. He said, do bees like the taste of nectar? Does the ant foraging for your crumbs feel better when she finds one? Or are insects merely tiny robots? In the phrase popularized by the philosopher Thomas Nagel, is there something it is like to be a bee? I love that. Is there something it is like to be a bee? And, you know, they talk about that, you know, what they actually found is that the part of the human brain called the midbrain can on its own give a person, this is without the cortex and the gray matter or surrounding it, can give a person lacking those more advanced part of the brain uh, simple awareness. And that the insect brain does something very similar to the midbrain. It absorbs information, it has memory, it, it has, allows the body to organize and plan activity. And if the insect brain does the same job as the vertebrate midbrain, then the insect has the capacity for awareness. And there have been other studies. There was a study about a year ago that was in the New York Times that showed that fruit flies uh, are capable of entering a fear-like state. And as they wrote, when a fly responds to a visual threat, it isn't just a robotic reflex. There's an internal state that develops. And then a study that I saw that showed that fruit flies have personalities. And so it turns out that some fruit flies are bold and some are shy. And some are more or less responsive to their environment. And some are neat and some are messy. And some use sex to get love. And no, just kidding. But still, <laughs> you know, is, is integral theory would tell us that actually consciousness goes all the way down to subatomic particles in the sense that all holons have an interiority. Now, of course, the consciousness of an atom is very, very little, as an atom is very, very little. But there is a great quote by the physicist Richard Feynman, and he would talk about, you know, electrons and how difficult 
they were to pin down because they'd show up and they'd disappear and then they'd be here, they'd be there. And he said that the best way to describe the behavior of electrons is that apparently they can do anything they like. And in a great paper called Do Atoms Play by David Graeber, he's an anthropologist from the London School of Economics, he writes about atoms having the, the only way to describe their behavior is playfulness. And so it turns out that, yes, indeed, there is something, it is like something to be a bee. And it may be like something to be an atom. Uh, and that this is, you know, it actually places us in the stream of life in a way where we're far more embedded if we just realize that the whole thing is conscious. There's just consciousness everywhere. You know, so I'm thinking about these personalities among bugs. And so I think, you know, maybe there's, you know, bugs have Enneagrams, uh, Enneagram types. And so now, I, I was like this morning, I cornered this house fly in my windowsill. And I was going for the kill with a fly swatter. And I thought, oh, that's just a poor little Enneagram 5 housefly like me with a, with a six wing, who, <laughs> if you'll pardon the expression, who's kind of lost and absorbed in his own world, and, and now I'm going to kill him. And I, I did let that one live this morning, so um, I'm kind of working on it. So, you know, consciousness goes all the way down, but it also goes all the way up, of course, to humans, but but also to higher intelligence in, uh, well, it's funny. The, 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 we, we, we have identified the ability for self-consciousness in a bird, the New Caledonian crow, a fish, the cuttlefish, and in mammals, uh, and in, of course, human beings, but also elephants and dolphins, uh, particularly, and particularly elephants, who are somehow just one of the most touching creatures on the planet, aren't they? Mm. You know, and by all accounts, uh, one of the most conscious species. And not just in terms of sentience and subjectivity, which is what, you know, this idea of it's like something to be a bee, but they're actually self-conscious in the sense that they are aware of themselves. They actually can recognize themselves in a mirror. That's sort of a a gold standard test for self-consciousness. And we're getting hip to that. And a lot is changing in the culture because of this consciousness. And I noticed that last week was the last show of the elephants in the Ringling, uh, Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus. They are now going to be retired. No more elephant shows as of last week. Uh, also true of the orcas in SeaWorld. That, that show is ending, the Shamu show. And uh, a big controversy in uh, uh, Thailand about the temple tigers that the, that the Buddhist uh, monks keep as a tourist attraction. And it's not only happening in the West, but it's pervading the entire world. And, um, and that's what we want to talk about with our guest tonight, who is, we're calling her Anonymous Annie, because she prefers to remain anonymous because she is fighting a clandestine war battle to save the temple elephants in Sri Lanka. 
And uh, some of you listening may know this person, but if you do, we ask that you please don't make her identity public, uh, for instance, on social media by liking or, or connecting or anything like that, because what she's doing puts her in, uh, as I said, a bit of a battle. And um, so she's doing it very successfully right here, uh, from right here in America. So welcome, Annie. Well, thank you, Jeff. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> Good. Good. I'm, I'm nervous. I'm noticing I'm nervous doing this, but I think I'm having palpitations about Trump. Oh, really? So, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, that could be. So we just, you know, shift gears and we move Trump <laughs> to the side. Right. And remove the elephants in. Yes. And, you know, first of all, God bless you for your work. And I know it's just, uh, you're, you're very, very informed by integral theory and, and using it as you do this activism. And, and that's one of the things that's most exciting is, I know integralists, you know, we talk a lot and, and we do a lot of theory. And I actually think that's good. And that, that's a piece of the puzzle, of course. But also, you know, let's take this, put the rubber to the road and actually use this. And you've been inspired by the drama of uh, these elephants in your native country, Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And why don't we start by, you just tell us a little bit about their plight, their situation. Yeah, sure. Well, thank you. So I think it all started for me. Um, I, am, I have been up until about a year and a half ago, just like most other global citizens who really have no clue about the abuse that elephants have been through. We're used to seeing them with chalk paint on them and being dressed up in costumes and walked in parades and pageants and circuses and zoos. And um, we're so used to seeing them in this captive state. So what I learned, um, and it came from seeing a video that somebody posted on Facebook um, of a baby, a young t uh, elephant of maybe five or six years old getting beaten um, mm. because the mahout, the mahout is the caretaker of the elephant. That's the the term that we use for a caretaker of, a, of an elephant. Um, the mahout was trying to get this elephant to lie down in this dirty, filthy kind of pool of water. That was the, the bathtub of the elephant. And... Um, the elephant was being stubborn and not willing to lie down, and the mahout was just beating it. Mm. And the reason why this shocked me was that it was in a temple that I used to go to in Sri Lanka. Oh, my goodness. Before I moved to the U.S., this is one of the most popular temples in the capital city, Colombo. It's a hot, humid city. The whole country is very hot and humid. You know, 90-degree days. And this elephant... All this kind of started coming to me, how I've kind of considered this to be normal, because I've seen elephants all over Sri Lanka. Right. A lot of them living in hotels in the tourism industry or in, monkle, in, in, in with monks in the temples. Um, and they lived their entire lives with chains on their feet. Um, about three of their legs would be chained to poles overnight. Mm. Um, until they're either giving rides or they're being forced to take part in parades and pageant pageants, cultural pageants. Um, you know, that's their life. And elephants live a long time. Right. And so this opened my eyes to what was going on. And I've always been um, a very big animal lover. 
But what this has, what this helped me understand was what we're doing to elephants in particular. Yeah. And it also occurred to me that a lot of people are already aware of what happens to the African elephant, which is that they get killed for ivory. The Asian elephant um, doesn't get killed for ivory so much. One reason is because Asian elephants actually don't grow as much tusks as the African elephant does. Mm -hmm. But not to say that Asian elephants don't. But what happens in Asia is when a tusker, they can identify a tusker when they're babies, they they try to capture the they try to capture the baby elephant because having the tusks mean that he or she is he is a special elephant. Yeah, and would lead the parade exactly. Yeah. He is the embodiment of our culture and our and our heritage and right. all of that. Right. So um, captivity of an elephant in Asia begins um, usually by people going into the, into the jungles and they wait for a herd of elephants to come and usually they kill the female mother and, and mother and the nannies mm. to capture the baby because otherwise you right. know, humans will get killed somehow. Yeah. So the baby elephant gets captured and is brought into um, an area usually secluded, hidden from people they don't want people to see this but then begins an almost it's not almost it's literally a medieval type of torture process over about a month long they're starved they're chained they're they're you know with heavy ropes these little baby elephants and they're beaten black and blue every day and they create this wooden structure into which they force the elephants they tie it and um and they they poke it with what's called the bull hook. It's a it's a sharp metal hook, which is what elef elephant trainers use and mahouts use to control them um, throughout the rest of their lives. Um, they electrocute them. They burn their genitals. They um, rip their ears. They hurt in the most sensitive parts of mm. their body, and their skin is injured. Um, they blow smoke up their trunks, which is extremely painful. Um, so they do this kind of very brutal torture processes in Thailand, in the Thai language, that process is called pajan. And pajan literally means crushing. Yeah. So it's... We it's, talk about breaking horses. Exactly. Wild horses. Exactly. Breaking. Yes. Them. Yes. Yeah. And so elephants, their spirit is crushed. And you hear people say that elephants never forget. And that's actually true. These elephants, they will never forget that trauma and that torture. Mm. They will never forget the pain that they endured. Mm. And for the rest of their lives, whether they're in cultural, religious context, or whether they're in the tourism industry, they look like they are behaving and they look like they're listening and humans can approach them. Not because they have become domesticated, but because they do not want to endure that pain again. Yeah. So they obey and they succumb to the human will. Yeah. yeah. So you see this yeah. over there. Now, you grew up with this and, and, of course, didn't see it as anything other than a cultural yeah. artifact. Yeah. And so, but now you, you become conscious of what's going on and what's going on in the interiors of the elephant. Mm -hmm. And you're moved to do something about it. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what so you've done. This is where integral activism or just plain old good old activism maybe came into play for me um, is I actually didn't wait until I had a nonprofit set up or that I knew I had a business plan or that I was going to save elephants even. 
But I simply just jumped on to what I knew to do somewhat was to just start a Facebook page. And I called my Facebook page, Say No to Cruelty to Our Elephants of Sri Lanka. I know it's a mouthful, (laughs) (laughs) but I wanted to like get the statement out right on the title. And um, little by little, my page, I started posting pictures and videos that I caught online of how Sri Lanka's elephants and globally, um, a lot of the the circus elephants that you see in the West, for example, Ringling Brothers, a lot of their performing elephants were brought from Sri Lanka. Really? Yeah. And went through the same crushing process. Yeah. Yeah. At some point in their lives, all elephants have been through that. The only elephants that may not go through that as severely are baby elephants that were born to breeding programs in captivity. Yeah. Yeah. So I started a Facebook page and it started growing and I've had it for about a little over a year. And um, I, my primary goal is really to educate people and to bring light to this hidden or this unknown area of ignorance. People think it's okay to go to see circus, circuses where wild animals are living in cages and tortured and put through tremendously difficult um, training processes to get them to perform yes zoos are no longer very okay either right you know it's no. it's a dying concept it's interesting as we you know develop our consciousness that's just you know and that's part of the, the sort of the achievement of green mm-hmm. consciousness of postmodern yes. consciousness we just get sensitive yes we want to be sensitive to pain wherever we can find it yes. isn't that great it's so great i mean i am giving so much praise to to green here you know our postmodern consciousness yeah yeah and and then you know and then i still think however because there are you know these strong green organizations who have you know fundraisers for dog rescuing or something like that and then they go to celebrate to to the steakhouse (laughs) i know well that's another topic for another night yeah (laughs) so (laughs) no i'm just uh, of course as i said that's my moral dilemma that I, you know, I struggle with actually every day more and more. And, you know, I move more and more towards more intelligent use and more, you know, and less and all of that. But yeah. it's it's a, a hypocrisy that I recognize in myself. Yeah. And you being a vegetarian don't have to worry about that. Yeah. This year actually is my 20th year. Wow. Being a vegetarian. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, yeah. Annie. Um, so, you talk, we talk about green, and, and but, you know, still in Sri Lanka, the, a lot of people are at that traditional stage, the amber so-called stage. Magical and this is a cultural that. icon of theirs. This mm-hmm. is like ripping, you know, their kids, they, they take them to this. It's, it's a big deal. It, you know, we, I don't Maybe when they're married or the big events, the elephant's part of almost their own soul. Mm-hmm. And isn't that something? Yeah. And so how do you deal with that, one? And two, is there a... A growing consciousness in Sri Lanka mm-hmm. uh, among you know indig- the people there mm-hmm. uh, to be changing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So my, um, I'm actually quite proud to say that I think my page really was the first of any page of that kind where mm. people were suddenly bombarded with elephant abuse going on. And let me just country. ask you too, just parenthetically, you're you're getting thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And have had very concrete results mm-hmm. yeah. uh, on your page. Actually, tell us a little bit yeah. about that, and then we'll look at maybe more of the cultural aspects. Sure, yeah. So I actually made a little list because I thought I might forget. Um, 
because of the activity on my page, we've actually managed to, and I really try to kind of get people involved. Um, these unknown people wrote to me one time saying there's a temple near their office and they always hear an elephant crying. Oh. And I told them, well, take your phones. Most Sri Lankans these days have smartphones. I told them, go to the temple, see if you can take some pictures and videos. Well, a bunch of young women working in that office, they went to the temple, they took photos. As they assumed, th there was an elephant who was getting beaten because it wasn't being obedient and um, was abused day and night. Well, they sent me the pictures. I posted it and I made it go viral within my network. Um, and that reached the news stations in Sri Lanka, some of the biggest news stations. Television stations. Television, yeah. Neat. So they, so the media actually went to that temple, they did some investigation, and that elephant was removed from that temple and taken to a rehabilitation And center. that was your first taste yeah, of success. Yeah, that was my first taste of success, yes. <laughs> um, I have, when I see tourism agencies, travel uh, tour groups and such, who still offer um, elephant rides, I will ask people to send me pictures or I do my own research and I take pictures and I put pictures of the management next to that and I will post these pictures on my website and I will say go to these travel firms, go to their websites and give them one star reviews. I will try to um, you know, bring down ratings for hotels, for tour groups, for these businesses. So I hit the orange. Right, I hit the their money. bank account basically or I try to. Um, and it's amazing because some companies have also had to have been forced to take down their Facebook pages completely because people from my page went and left such awful review after review after review. And, you know, from 4.8 star reviews, I've brought them down to like 1.5 reviews. Wow. Yeah, yeah. ratings. Um, I have gotten certain tourist agencies um, to end giving elephant rides. They have posted it on their website. We no longer offer elephant rides. Same thing with hotels. The hardest is trying to change the temples and the monks. Really? They really feel that the elephant is a symbol of their Buddhist uh, whatever. So this goes on in, in India, in the Hindu temples, yeah. elephants are abused. Well, this is the tigers in the, in the Buddhist temples in, in um, Thailand right. also. Right, right. Yeah. So, um, so how do I how do I connect or translate my message to Amber and and earlier? Mm -hmm. You know, magical. Um, it's hard. What yeah. I've learned is that it's hard. So my tactic, in a way, has been to ignore red and amber. Just try to approach orange and green. What little there is of it. Because if businesses, if hotels start saying our tourists are refusing elephant rides, you know, or our, won't our come guests, here if yeah, we're if we're offering exactly, it. you yeah. know, and I'm constantly posting pictures of hotels saying boycott this particular hotel or something like that, yeah. you know, and I don't think that it's it's you know that people are. I mean, I don't really know how many people are paying attention to those things, but I do know that some Sri Lankans at least are waking up to this. I have about 22,000 likes on my page, and I would love for it to be a lot more because it is a country of 19 million people. But 22,000, that's impressive. Yeah, and that's without any advertising or any of that. And I just took um, a snapshot of the stats, stats of my Facebook page between the days of April 26th and May 2nd. My page post reached 79,000 people. And about 26,000 people had post engagement, which means they liked or they left a comment or they shared something um, or they reacted in some way. So that's the, that's what the data shows. Unbelievable. 
Some of my videos have been watched 250,000 times. Oh my goodness. Around the world and have been shared you know hundreds of thousands of times because they're they're really brutal videos. I mean yes. they're hard and it's eye-opening and people people are learning. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I have yeah, you know, a lot of this without any advertising or anything like that. Now, do you have any idea where those people are coming from? Are they yeah. Western? Are they Sri Lankan? Most, or both? Interestingly, most are from Sri Lanka. Really? And the second uh, biggest country is USA here. Yeah. There's a large Sri Lankan population here, yeah. but also lots of Westerners. I've actually seen people from Boulder, Colorado, who have commented on my comment, yeah. uh, posts. Um, and next is Australia. Yeah. Yeah. So you're focusing, you know, uh, uh, unabashedly on green and orange. They're the people mm -hmm. who can hear what you have to say. Yeah. Uh, so how is Amber handling it? How are the traditionalists handling they're it? They're the ones who leave the hate comments on my yeah. page. So blowback. They're, they're, they're blowback. They are, um, they are just disgusted that there's someone out there um, who is trying to tarnish the image of Sri Lanka, who is trying yeah. to tarn or destroy Buddhism in mm -hmm. Sri Lanka and yeah. this kind of thing. And um, I basically can't argue with them. I can't fight with them. I just, you know, some of them leave, you know, kind of filth and um, very obnoxious comments and stuff. Mm -hmm. I tolerate some of it. And then some of it is just really just trolling. So I, I just ban them. Yeah. Um, because th that's the thing. I think when you want to do something and focus on something, you can't really please everyone. Um, neither can you fight all the time with everyone. Um, you just have to pick your battles and do the best you can with who you think will make a change. Yeah. You know, I'm hoping for a tipping point here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, um, you know, this, the cultural thing is, is strong. I mean, I think of bullfighting in Spain. Yes. I yeah. think of, um, you know... Um, Camel rides in the Middle yeah. East. Bile farms in China, the the Yulin dog meat festival, yes. South Korean meat industry, yes. um, horse racing, and you know horse carriages all throughout dog London. Dog racing, yeah, you know it's dog fights, chicken fights. My people did yeah. chicken fights yeah. back where I grew up. Yeah, and I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. You know, of yeah. course, you know that's that's the stage I was at too. So part of what makes this possible, of course, is this. Uh, technology mm -hmm. of the lower right quadrant, exactly. the, this social media. Mm -hmm. And you have found the secret sauce or the code for using that to, from America, affect mm -hmm. this kind of a change halfway around the world. Yes. Yes, there are people who are literally trying to find me in Sri Lanka. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, nobody knows that I'm in Boulder. Um, and the reason why I've asked for privacy and anonymity is because really I am naming and shaming very large political figures, religious monks and leaders. And um, there are a lot of people who are who think that my page is bringing shame to the country. And so they're actually really angry. And so there are people who are trying to find me. And even if that didn't happen, I still feel that I can do my work best when I'm unknown. Yeah. Nobody needs to know. You don't need to be yeah, known. exactly. You know, that's not part exactly. of what would make this work or yeah. not work. That's the power of social media. Yeah. You know, you can actually be doing some good work to the best of your ability. Nobody needs to know who you are. You just do the work. Yeah. And get your message out. Yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much mm -hmm. for sharing what you're doing here. I'm very inspired. And I'm sure many of our listeners are too and may want to go to your page. So how could they find you? For anyone who has a Facebook account, um, you can just simply search for a group called 
a page called Say No to Cruelty to, Sri to Our Elephants of Sri Lanka. And we will, of course, post the link. Okay. All right. Thank you, <laughs> yeah. Anonymous Annie. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, uh, that does it for another Daily Evolver. And uh, stay tuned. Next week, we'll probably dive into American politics because it seems like we're getting uh, an idea of exactly who we got to work with here in this next phase. So thank you for tuning in. Have a great week, and we'll see you then. This is Jeff Salzman saying good night. <laughs>